You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back. This is episode 100 of the Rotary Wing Show, going to air in May 2021. Thanks for tuning in and joining me as together we find out more about the helicopter industry. ICAO publishes a list of 35 aviation occurrence categories. So when there is an accident or an incident, the investigators will tag it against one or more of these categories. And the categories are things like icing, aerodrome, turbulence, wind shear, security-related, low-level operations, bird strike, fuel, and the categories include unintended flight into IMC. That last one we more generally call inadvertent IMC or inadvertent instrument met conditions. This is when visual conditions looking outside have degraded to the point that we have to use flight instruments to control the aircraft. So crashing aircraft due to inadvertent IMC is nothing new and happens frequently enough that it has its own ICAO occurrence category. The easy association here is entering into cloud, and that's fairly obvious. But by definition, anytime we are below VMC or visual met conditions, we are technically in IMC. You have to be in one or the other. If you are flying in rain or smog, and the visibility drops below 5,000 metres, and you haven't planned for it, and you can't use special VFR or helicopter VMC, then you are are now IMC, even if you're not actually in cloud. The bigger machines out there have some amazing instrument capability fitted to them. But in many cases, if you find yourself going inadvertent IMC in a helicopter, you are already likely to be low-level near hills and obstacles, as you've probably been scud running to get to that point. You're going to have a very basic instrument fit out. The helicopter is most likely not going to have stability assist or any autopilot functions. And in terms of pilot skills, how likely are you to be instrument qualified? And if you are, how current are you? So it's not going to be a nice spot to be. Flying at night has its own challenges with the lack of visual cues. But the other scenario that can put us in that really uncomfortable situation where we we can't see as much as we'd like to, is landing in dust or snow. As that rotor wash kicks up the the loose surface and the the cloud catches up as we drop below ETL, you can find yourself scrambling for any reference that you can get, and you just feed off the ground. Today's guests have come up with a training solution to help us get better at reacting to that transition into instrument conditions and that takes a lot of the risk out of practicing for degraded visual landings. Tyson Phillips and Andre Lavelli make up the team at AT Systems, a US company bringing a new training device to market. Tyson and Andre are both instructor pilots with the US Army National Guard, Tyson in Oklahoma, and Andre in Texas. Between the two, Man, wait till you just hear about their experience. They have done a lot, both in the military side and on Sibby Street, fixed wing and rotary, and they are really passionate about what they do. 
Let's get into it. Tyson, Andre, thanks very much for, for having a chat. I'm, I'm really keen to find out more about what you guys have come up with here with the, the vision system. And, of course, we're going to talk a heap about that. But I guess if we talk a little bit about your experiences and because you've got so much experience between the two of you. Uh, so, Tyson, I don't know if you want to tackle it first, but do you want to talk about what your, your day job is um, and, and how it ties in with flying and with the... Um, the the vision device that you guys have come up with. Oh, absolutely. So uh, my my background is a uh, army trained instructor pilot on the UH sixty Mike Blackhawk. Um, so all my background, um, well, the vast majority of my background is uh, military, um, but more so training. I'm on the training side. So I've deployed a couple times in both helicopters and airplanes. So I've kind of got kind of got uh, both sides of that uh, experience. The, um, from, a, from a trainer, I've been an instructor pilot for the last 10 years or so, I guess, maybe, yeah, about 10 years. So the vast majority of my time um, has been on the, training, the, on the training side. That's where our focus has been is, is the training, you know, training the pilot, uh, teaching the pilot, you know, making, a, uh, making, the, uh, making the process smoother. The, uh, my, my civilian my civilian flying is, is really limited on the helicopter side, on the airplane side. Um, it's really just, you know, Cessna 172s, Piper Warriors, uh, and what have you. So my, my, my heart and brain um, are much more helicopter-centric than anything else. Um, I think it's a, a, the helicopter is a great platform uh, in general. The Blackhawk is certainly a, a wonderful aircraft to fly, but it's just such a neat – Helicopters are so incredible because they can do so many different things. Uh, and in any, any given day, in any given flight, you can go from hoist operations to water buckets. Of course, you guys have, have, have had a rough few years with wildfires. So it's so uh, such a neat platform. You, I, I just don't know how you can't love it. Absolutely. And I guess both of you uh, in your bios and website says 9-11 was kind of what you got, got you into this. And, and uh, it must have been a, a massive you know, not recruiting drive, but a massive, massive sign-up, I guess, around that period because it affected both of you guys. But you're a little bit unusual in terms of you've gone from the, the back seat into the front seat. So how did you find going through flight school, having worked in the, in the back of the as – a, as a backseater in the, in the Blackhawk? Was that a massive advantage? Hey, I, I, oh, it's a huge advantage. You know, I, when we were going through – Andre and I went through flight school together. Um, so it was a, a huge advantage because – where most everyone else, most everyone else is seeing this information for the first time. Uh, I was somewhat familiar with some of the things I watched. You know, pilots make good and bad choices for for several years before I went to flight school. So I had a leg up on uh, on education where I didn't have to. I'd already witnessed some uh, some errors made, so I didn't have to make some of the same some of those same errors. So so that that provided an incredible opportunity. And then, you know, when you look at like the systems data that we, or systems uh, that we, you know, that the Army goes through, I wasn't seeing it for the first time. I was seeing it for the second time or third time. So I was, because I was more familiar and had that basis of knowledge, I think it, it, it certainly helped me, it better prepared me for, for the training. So yeah, it was, uh, I, I, it absolutely prepared me for flight school and, and, and helped me be more successful. And, and I will say on the other side, being a being a crew chief on a on a Blackhawk is is absolutely the greatest job for uh, for an enlisted soldier, uh, in my opinion. I love the time I 
I love the time I got to uh, spend. And, and every year when we do aerial gunnery, I'm, I'm always always wonder if I should have stayed in the back because they have a lot more fun during aerial gunnery than we do. Oh, <laughs> totally. Come on now. <laughs> I'm telling you that getting getting to shoot a machine gun out of a helicopter is 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 pure joy. It's just so <laughs> much fun. Um, so that's uh, the one time of year I'm always. I always try to convince them they should let me sit back there and, and, and play and they never do. I, I think I had two chances at it in the, in the quad compartment of the, the Hueys. I mean, I wasn't very good at it, but uh, you're right. It was good fun. Makes a mess with the brass. Yes. 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 And you know, honestly, I think it, it goes back to, to a training thing, putting pilots back there to understand it's not easy. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenging, it's a challenging uh, thing. And I think it's good for pilots to understand that. So, uh, I try to get, I, I, I've tried every year to get to where we put pilots in the back to see it maybe self-serving because I'll be one of those pilots. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not as easy as you would think. Andre, if we switch across to, to you, uh, I think you've, you must have touched or flown almost everything in the inventory there. But what came first? Were you, <laughs> were you flying before you got your, your driver's license? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, uh, I got my pilot's license before I got my driver's license. Uh, I was one of those lucky lucky youngsters who uh who wanted to fly since they were very small and so having odd jobs and paper routes and whatnot when i turned 16 my parents uh had a little uh savings account for me and they said if you want to use this to get your pilot's license you can have it now and if you don't you don't get this money until you're 18 so it was a pretty easy decision at that point <laughs> um so yeah <laughs> i got my uh i got my pilot's license and then it was Quite a bit. I mean, I got my pilot's license. I started flying in 1992, but I didn't go to flight school with the Army until 2006. So there was quite a bit of time where I was just a fixed-wing guy. And, it, you know, it, you know as well as anyone else, uh, helicopters cost more money to rent. So it came down to, you know, do I want to spend this $100 to to fly one hour in a plane, or do I want to wait and get another 100 hours so I get or $100 so I can get one hour in a helicopter until the army really uh, adopted me. <laughs> I didn't have the uh, the ability to fly helicopters, even though I think uh, uh, from a very young age, I always wanted to fly helicopters. I think Airwolf back in the eighties got me hooked on helicopters. Yep. And the TV show has uh, a lot to answer for, for a, a lot of us of that particular age group. That was my, my show of choice. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Hey. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I, I've flown uh, um, quite a bit in the Army inventory, and then I've flown some Bells and uh, oil and gas offshore and Eurocopter or Airbus uh, when I was doing medevac uh, with hospitals. But like Tyson, I'm back. Uh, I'm back every day training uh, Army pilots, except uh, he's doing it in a 60, and I'm doing it in a Chinook in a CH-47F. Yeah, and it's unreal like, to have a background of, you know, attacks, Apache, the um, um, Kiowa, Chinook. Like, you know, you've flown pretty much every aspect of, of Army aviation in terms of uh, roles. That's amazing. It's funny because between Tyson and I, we do cover every single airframe that uh, the Army has to offer at this time. It's uh, it, it worked out. So when we when we designed it and, and, and came up with the idea, we were always looking at it from pilot standpoint in every different airframe and how how it could be best implemented. Before we talk about uh, IMC and and Dustin, uh, I'll just quickly touch on the 
on the National Guard because I think we've we talked about that before uh, here on on the shows. My first experience of the National Guard is I did a exercise in Hawaii in uh, two thousand uh, before I got into aviation, and I think Australia at the time someone will correct me we had like six um, Chinooks or maybe eight like it's, it's our total fleet even now. And I turned up in Hawaii, and I think that's the, the base next to Schofield Barracks. And I don't know, it was like 20 Chinooks or something just sitting on the tarmac empty. And they were the, the, they were the National Guard. So people would be working during the week and turn up on the weekend and go follow these Chinooks. And it just blew my mind the scale of the fact that, you know, the, this organization was big enough to have these aircraft sitting on the ground during the week waiting for the, the pilots to come in on the weekend or however it works. Whereas, that was like three or four times our national Chinook fleet. So how does the how's the guard work for you guys in terms of, you know, for the average guard pilot, how often are they flying? You know, are they airline pilots on, the, on their day job? What's the mix that you guys work with? Well, so there's always a misconception with the guard um, and even with our guys that come in as pilots. Um, you know, for our pilots, and I can speak for my facility, most, we call them M-Day guys, our part-time guys that have, have jobs out in the civilian sector. Most of those guys and girls have come in and fly once a week. Um, so on average, our average pilot between our annual training and then coming in that once a week probably fly between 125 to maybe 150 hours um, a year. And then on top of those, you know, the once a week and the one week in a month and then the two weeks in the summer, we're always we're, matter of fact, here in Oklahoma, and I, I'm betting, Andre, you guys are the same in Texas, we're prepping for our fire season, um, which should be coming upon us very soon as predicted to not – it's predicted to not be a very good one, in the, at least in our favor. So they're predicting a pretty bad fire season. So that's, you know, that's additional flight, flight time for, uh, for the folks. So as far as – I don't know that you'll find a quote-unquote average guard pilot. I know – I know you'll see several that are, uh, are uh, EMS pilots. Um, that's probably if there, if there are two common jobs, I would say EMS and airlines. But um, we've got we've got a couple engineers. We've got a couple that work for some simulator companies. It's kind of a I, I think one of the strengths of the National Guard in the in the United States is the diversity of our of our workforce. You know, because you go we've got enlisted guys with mechanical engineering degrees and electrical engineering degrees. So you see such a large swing in in knowledge base and experience we have it folks on board so for us we see a pretty a pretty broad spectrum left and right but but like i said if i were to have to pick two jobs airlines and and uh, emf tend to be in, in oklahoma uh, tend to be uh, where our our uh, our part-time guys work now we have several that are on like andre and i that are full-time staff to support uh, the training program and, and be there when needed. So there is, there is a, a, a group of us. There is a group of us that are full-time for that full-time support. But like I said, that's Oklahoma. Texas may be different. They're a little closer to the Gulf of Mexico. So, so I, 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 I'd be curious what you, what your own breakdown is, Andre. Well, we, uh, just like you, we train for the fire season, but we're also preparing for hurricanes throughout hurricane season, which just like the fire season is supposed to be a little bit worse this year. I did want to add one thing uh, that uh, with the common misperceptions is the National Guard pilots, even though they only come in once a month, they have the same uh, requirements as active duty as far as flight time. They have to maintain proficiency for a year. 
So you you would think that with the guard pilots that the uh, they would cut down on what their requirements were, but they're not. They uh, they hold us to the exact same requirements and standards that the active duty does. So these guys have to really try um, to stay proficient and come in, like Tyson was saying, at least once a week. And uh, sometimes that's tough with the civilian gigs. But I, I would say probably a little bit more than you, T, I do have a lot of airline pilots uh, on my MDEC staff. I would say... Eighty percent of my M day staff is airline pilots. Oh wow! Um, yeah. Oh, it and just seems like a fantastic setup. The fact that yeah, you, you know, it is, yeah, you can then, you can get that mix of of flying the helicopters and those particular types, and you know, be doing you know airline flying or you know, be a chef or something like that. It's uh, yeah, it just the the resourcing. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think it's a amazing system. It'd be great fun to do. Yeah. Yeah, they they seem to enjoy it, and that's the other thing about the guard. We we tend to get people who stick around for a long time. You know, we're active duty. You know, people get burnt out pretty quick. But in the National Guard, you can go and do something you love uh, or have to do to to maintain your your lifestyle, and then you can still have that camaraderie and that uh, fun of going out and flying a uh, military aircraft one weekend a month. I was going to say, I'll add one more thing, I think, on the guard mission is, or the guard in what Andre's saying where we keep people around is, it's incredible because so many of our missions stateside revolve back to helping the citizens of our state and the country as a whole, because, of course, we'll go support other states. So it's a a lot of fun. You get to do something, you get to fly incredible equipment, but oftentimes we get the opportunity to go help help folks in the the state. So it's a it's a it's just a, a really neat opportunity. So it, I think it, it it kind of furthers Andre's thought on we have the longevity, and it's because we have a great mission here in the U.S. You know, to support our own citizens. So it's a it's a fun opportunity. All right. Well, let's. Um, I guess if we pivot now to wartime bits and pieces and, and overseas experience, and I guess let's tie in now. Uh, I don't know if you have got accident rates there for how losses say in Afghanistan due to the dust approaches versus you know enemy contact and things like that but I'm imagining and I guess we're you know we're going to talk about the, the vision system you guys have got the training system where it ties in yeah what, what was your experience with with flying overseas and you know I'm, I'm guessing Afghanistan or Iraq with the, the dust on that side of things so my deployment was was dust and um or excuse me, my, my deployment with uh, on the helicopter side was was to Iraq. Um, I think Andre, you've been both, if I remember right, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I don't have statistics. We have we we've, we've done a Freedom of Information Act, so we've gotten a lot of information from from the Army as it relates to IIMC or UIMC as it's being termed to dust landings, um, snow, um, what what the Army is termed as a degraded visual environment. Now we don't. What we don't have is comparison to, to the combat-related deaths. But what one thing that was really interesting through the statistics, through our research, a couple things. When comparing the loss rates across um, the military in comparison to um, the U.S. civilian sector, the statistics were were alarmingly similar. To the point that I actually, when we were doing them, I, I called Andre and I said. I think I made a mistake. I said these these statistics are almost they're almost the same. 
And he said, well, he said, just put it away for a few days and let's, let's kind of, you know, fresh eyes. So I went back a couple of days later and I got the same numbers again. And I said, I, I, there's no way I, I, I didn't make the same mistake twice. I, I, may, I may have made different mistakes, but I ended up at the same point. So, so the loss rates were, were very interesting in that regard. Now the army, we had a lot more, a lot more data because of the, the army's reporting and tracking through our freedom of information act, but the army breakdown, you know, the vast majority of their accidents were dust related as far as getting into that landing phase of the, uh, of a flight. But the vast majority of the cost to human life, as well as equipment was inadvertent IMC um, or the in-flight phase. So that's why we want to address both of them. And, and it makes sense when you look at, uh, if you take a black cock or a Chinook into a dust landing area, those accidents are often not fatal because there's, they're not as violent as a, a true in-flight spatial disorientation accident. So all the statistics made sense. The loss rates made sense when you really kind of look at the, the mission. And, and truth of the matter is the, um, the airframes made sense. If you look, bear with me one second. I actually have the statistics. I'll pull up so I'm not working from memory. Um, when you look at the... Well, we switch over. Andre, what was your experience? You know, what's it like to, to land in dust? My flying has been pretty tame. I've only done it once or twice, and they were memorable. But, uh, yeah, what's, the, what's yeah. the background for the... I, I will tell you that the, uh, the the thing that amazed me was the very first time we uh, we landed in a dust cloud. We, we went out west to the desert, and uh, we took the whole company. We went out there, and we put one experienced pilot up front, and one experienced guy in the back. And those two individuals were guiding the rest of us novices who've never done it before into an actual dust cloud. And the next day we were doing it under goggles. The, the resources that require us to stay proficient and, and go out there is, um, is, is high, right? So the only way to really train it was to go out there and do it for real. And, and you you said you may have done one or two, so you know that there's there's quite a bit of pucker factor when you lose all visual, and you're just waiting for the helicopter to contact the ground, and you hope that there's no uh, big rock or a gully that you didn't see, or maybe even a a sand dune that you didn't make out because of the low contrast as you're coming in. So it's it's kind of like, you know, you hit the dust cloud, you put the collect it down you you hope you're lined up and you just wait for the the violence to stop and then you look at the other guy and go okay that's how it does that's how it goes um so it's pretty, pretty bit easy with the uh the landing gear on a, on a uh 60 but with uh with skids and things like that i just remember the only thing i could see was like a, a foot foot high little shrub with, with leaves and uh yeah very very uncomfortable and that's the only thing in the world you can very, see so when we were developing this, it was it was definitely part of uh, the overall plan was to develop something that we could kind of do a more of a crawl, walk, run training event where you're not going out there in the dust and putting the aircraft and everyone on board at risk the first time you do it. And that's what it got um, me, the, the video on your website. And Tyson, we'll circle back for those stats there. But, you know, I guess there's, there's different instrument flying training devices out there, but the, the thing that got me on the, on the website is you got the video looking through this fire zone. We'll talk about the, the equipment, but coming in on approach and then having it starting to, to lose visibility on an approach to, to runway in that particular video, 
yeah, I hadn't seen anything out there outside of a, a simulator for, for dust training. So yeah, that's why really, we really want to find out more about this and we'll, we'll get there. But yeah, I thought that was the really unique thing about this set of training visor or vision system that you guys have got. So did you get those stats, Toss? I did. I did. I'm, so I'm looking at the, uh, so the Army stats are really interesting. But again, when you look at the mission profiles of the different airframes that we fly, that the Army flies, the statistics make, make, make absolute sense. So if you look at, at the dust, at the landing phase of degraded visual environments, um, there were, there were 100, a little over 140 accidents. The Apache had the fewest number of accidents with the highest fatality rate. And when you look at it on the surface, that doesn't make any sense. You have an aircraft that has two pilots. So you don't have, you, you, in, in, a, in a complete loss, there's two, two people on board where a Chinook, well, a Chinook can haul a ton of people. But when you start looking, their mission profile isn't to go land in the dust. Where when you look at the Blackhawk, which we have a lot of Blackhawks, the Army has a lot of Blackhawks, uh, they had the highest number of accidents. But again, you look at a medevac helicopter, medevac Blackhawk, they're going out landing in the middle of, 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 uh, of nothing, not to a hard stand. So when we really dug into the statistics, we, we, we saw that right away. When you look at the comparison, and this is where I think it, it, it was most interesting, 90% of the fatalities occurred in 10% of the accidents. 10% of the Army's accidents that involve spatial orientation as it relates to degraded visual environments. 10% of the accidents were the in what I'm generically calling the in-flight phase. 90% were in the that landing phase into that dust and snow environment. And I don't reference the dust and snow because surely the in-flight in, in phase could certainly be dust or snow, but that landing versus in-flight. Whereas 90% of the accidents, excuse me, 10% of the accidents produced 90% of the uh, of the fatalities. So th that number was was very interesting. Again, from the civil side, U.S. civil side, we didn't see, we couldn't get that kind of breakdown. And of course, a lot of the civil side doesn't do as much, certainly does not do as much dust landing. Hey, I'm going to let this plane pass over. The uh, fighter squadron that's uh, based out of our airport has been um, not flying neighborly lately. <laughs> um, from the civil side, the U.S. civil side, of course, they, there's not as much dust and snow landing. Not saying they don't do it; it's just not as predominant as uh, as our as military operations over the last 20, 20 some odd years. But their excuse me, their fatality rate was again upwards of 80, 90 percent fatalities. So the numbers again are so clear, and, and that's what when Andre and I were, were developing this, that was one of our discussions. You know, this is not an Army problem, a U.S. Army problem, or a U.S. Air Force problem. This is a helicopter problem, and and it made us really look at at the industry as a whole, not just not just our little slice of the industry. And of course, the statistics across the world are not as easy for us to gather. But we talked to enough people around the world because we've we've presented multiple places and it's with multiple groups because we we spent five years researching this. We, Andre and I both participate on different helicopter safety enhancements through the U.S. helicopter safety team as they relate to training, spatial orientation training specifically, because, again, we spent all this time researching it and want the information to get out because it, it's, it's, it's too valuable to keep, you know, to keep internal, <laughs> internal to us. You know, all these folks that are out there flying, they need this information. They need it to train better. So 
when you look internationally and we talk to the international community, it's not any different. They don't see, you know, he, I, I've not talked to a single helicopter pilot that looked at me and said, I just don't think this is a problem. Everyone comes back. And, and I said, Andre and I, everywhere we've gone, everyone comes back and says, this is a huge problem. And there's a, there's a bigger problem to it and a lack of understanding, but I won't, we'll, we can get to that one later. But like I said, it, it's a helicopter problem. It's an instability problem because the greatest thing about a, a helicopter is it can hover. And the worst thing about a helicopter is it can hover when the weather gets bad because people push further. People, I, I can slow down. All the things that your, that your brain and your body want to naturally do in making a situation safer are making that aircraft more and more unstable. So it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's furthering the problem. It's making it more challenging because of that, because we become, the worse it gets, the slower I go, the slower I go, the more unstable I get, the lower I get, the closer I am to obstacles. And it's just this, this vicious circle that makes things worse. So training into making that better decision is, is the, is the key to make a, a better decision sooner. But like I said, the statistics show it's, it's a helicopter problem across the board. The airplane industry has a similar test. problem. Yeah, that's what I was going to cover, T. Uh, yep. All our research and all our statistical data was based on helicopters. So we didn't really uh, – we haven't really delved into the fixed wing. It, it And it is a problem in the fixed wing, but we don't know how big of a problem in the fixed wing. We definitely have all the figures for the, uh, for the, for the rotor wing accidents, but we uh, – we knew that the device would be able to use them both. We really were just trying to make sure that we were trying to solve a problem that was actually a problem. And the more we dug into statistics, the more apparent it became that uh, this is definitely something that needs to, to to have some attention drawn to it and uh, better training methods developed. What I might get you to do then, just so people have got context of, of where we're going, is I might just describe when you're holding the system or wearing on your helmet what the, the end product looks like and we can come back and talk about some of the prototyping how you guys got there but Tyson just to kick off what you were saying there about that cycle with the bad weather unfortunately I don't think I can't get him on as a guest he's ended up turning it down but I've just read the story often you know you hear people having to hover up a a hillside on the treetops because it's in cloud and that's how they get to a rescue is they they hover up the hill above the trees but uh, this particular one they were in the snow and the only way he could get to them was he had to kick out his paramedic in the back with a, an orange jacket and follow the paramedic had to walk up the snow and he hovered the helicopter hovering with visual reference off the paramedic's orange jacket um, and that's how he got to the, the rescue. That's the most extreme case I've heard um, for that one. I just thought off your saying that's uh, I would have loved I would have loved to hear the cockpit audio of that uh, of that plan material I think. <laughs> Can you imagine that? So yeah, I think it was a single pilot in a in a squirrel, and yeah, the only way they could get to the rescue site was the the paramedic had to get out and walk through the snow. So he had visual reference, <laughs> but that's the most extreme story I've heard. But yeah, do you want to describe? So if I'm sitting or I'm walking out the aircraft, or I'm sitting in the cockpit. What am I holding? What am I seeing? Where's it plugged into? Uh, and then yeah, I guess we can talk about how you started the process. Yeah, absolutely. So we have both a helmet and non-helmet system. Um, so we're going to focus on our helmet system. That's the more predominant, certainly, in the helicopter industry. So sitting at the table, you're going to put on one of two adapters, depending on the helmet system you have, and you're going to put on the power pack. So the easiest way to, to, to kind of give a, a paint a picture, if you will, if you will, is if you're familiar with uh, night vision goggle 
battery packs, that's about the size of our power pack. Now, our power pack includes our circuit board and, and battery. Um, you're going to connect that up to either the adapter or what we call an X bracket, which is probably going to end up with a name change to a spider bracket because that has been the, all the testing we've done. Everyone has always called it a spider bracket. But it mounts onto the helmet, and again, depending on the, the type of helmet you, you're using, that's all you're going to attach in the sitting at the table during the during the brief. You're going to walk out to the aircraft once you've put your helmet on. Then you're going to attach the actual visor assembly. It attaches magnetically because in a, in the case of an accident, what we don't want to do is further hurt the pilot. So it breaks away in a if if there if for whatever reason there was an accident, engine failure, tail rotor problem, whatever it may be. In a hard landing situation, this, the assembly is going to break loose so that it does not exert stress onto the pilot's neck and head. So you're going to put that on in flight. The safety pilot, the training pilot, is going to use the iPad. And what's, what's critical in how this training is conducted, in the past, when we think of instrument training, rotor up, skids down, that's a good thing. Well, that's not exactly what our goal is. Our goal is a little different than, than what we've done in the past. Everyone always jokes, and, and, and especially airplane pilots, why can you guys not fly instruments? And I always challenge them, how many helicopters have you seen magically fall out of the clouds? And there's not many. I, I will tell you that I only found one, and I, in, in my research, I, I don't believe it was a lack of skill set. I believe they got into some sort of heavy icing or wind shear. It wasn't, pilot, it wasn't a pilot uh, mistake. It was, uh, it, I think it was a weather phenomenon. But I use that analogy because – we don't have an instrument problem. It's the transition period. So going back to how we designed our system, we, we built a couple different things into it. And, and you hear me say safety pilot and training pilot. The safety pilot training pilot is not actually staring at the iPad. Our, our application is completely autonomous. We can train in a couple different ways, and I'll, I'll hit on those in just a moment. But we built that in, a, in, in, a way because, in that way because it was critical to keep the safety pilot outside because unlike that instrument training I referenced, we are trying to disorientate a pilot. And when you look at these accidents, a lot of them occur in less than 30 seconds. So when you look, you know, Andre and I are both pilots, so we're going to do simple math. When you look at the, uh, there were two different accidents. One was military, one was civil. And both of them were very similar, not in how they got there, but they're basically disorientation accidents. One of them was a low contrast environment. One of them was a bad visibility. One of them hit the ground about 6,000 feet per minute, and one of them hit the ground at 7,000 feet per minute. They both started about the same altitude, roughly 1,000 feet off the ground. Quick, simple math. After about six to seven seconds, that aircraft was unrecoverable. The aircraft was going to have an accident. Now, how violent it was certainly could be argued, and that gets into a much more scientific math equation. But after about five to six seconds, the aircraft's going to crash. So we built these safety systems in, one being the, the entire training program is autonomous. Once you tell it to go, for example, if you're going to do a dust landing, you tell the system to, to, to start. Now the safety pilot is being a safety pilot. His attention is completely focused outside. The other thing that was critical was we built in two different safeties. If the aircraft, if our system senses the aircraft has exceeded pitch or roll or vertical speed, the entire assembly will go clear and lift out from in front of the pilot's face, putting both pilots into the recovery mode. And that was critical, again, because if the safety pilot gets distracted, we don't have time to – certainly don't have time to make bad, bad control inputs. 
but we wanted both pilots doing everything they could to affect their their own recovery. So we built those wait, safety wait, into wait one second because you you missed the you, you skipped over a critical piece. The limits he was talking about, the pitch roll, y'all, those are limits that the instructor picks based on the student's abil abilities. The the instructor can select those those limits that he's willing to allow the aircraft to go while doing this training. So if I if I'm flying with a new pilot, I may only allow him to have a a 30 uh, you know 30 degree bank angle. If he banks the aircraft greater than 30 degrees, then it's going to go clear and flip up. Or I may go out with a more advanced pilot and give him you know 45 50 degrees of bank before uh, give him an opportunity to recover the aircraft before it goes clear and flips up. So those uh, those features that Tyson was talking about, those limits of bank and pitch and roll were all set by the instructor. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so you get out to the aircraft. We've got our, our helmet has our power pack and our, our adapter to attach the visor. We sit down at the aircraft. The pilot, excuse me, the training pilot then can uh, go through the run up and then attaches the visor assembly to to the X bracket or adapter, whichever is applicable for their, their helmet. The other piece that's in our system is we have an, assist, an AHARS, an attitude heading reference system. All those safeties are driven off of our attitude heading and reference system. So we have an iPad and an AHARS, and then we've got the components attached to the helmet of the training pilot. So as far as how the training goes, because again, it's completely autonomous, we can train three different areas of degraded visual environment. Um, and then inside the inadvertent IMC piece, we can actually train four different ways. So the three different methods, or excuse me, the three different conditions that we train are dust and snow takeoffs and landing, inadvertent IMC or UIMC, and then IMC. And I'll start on IMC. Candidly, it's the most boring, but it's, it's so simple and it improves our instrument training so much so. We can replicate the environment from takeoff to landing. So, for example, I'm going to give a check ride, um, and I'll pick on Andre. I'm going to give Andre a check ride, and we're leaving Airport A, and we're going to set the weather. Um, I'll use the Army minimums are 100 and a quarter is what the Army says that we can take off, depending on some other factors. But we can set the, the weather at our takeoff airport at 100 and a quarter, and then we can turn around and set our visibility and ceilings at the breakout airport or the landing airport as appropriate. So when you look at most of your ILSs, we come down to 200 and a half. I, I, I always like asking young pilots, what are your minimums? And the response from, for our guys are always the same. Oh, it's a hundred and a quarter to take off. What's your minimum to land here at this airport? Uh, 200 and a half. And I always tell them, those are the minimums that the Army and the FAA has established. That doesn't mean that should be your minimum. So what's nice is we can go out with this brand new pilot that tells me that a hundred and a quarter is, is reasonable to take off in, and you can let them take off in those conditions. They're going to have to taxi out, set up, and depart. So that's the front side of it. When we talk about the landing, I think it's even more interesting because on the landing, we always train the same way. We break out, quote unquote, break out, roll your foggles off, go land. Well, that's not the most critical phase of the, of the, of the operation because like we talked about earlier, helicopters are not just falling out of the air or flying, you know, flying instruments. It's that transition period. There was an accident in Minnesota in 2000 and um, in 2019, I believe, that the pilot did everything right, breaks out the bottom of an instrument approach, and becomes spatially disoriented. 
what we do is when you break out, if you tell me 200 and a half, when you come through 200 feet, you're going to have half mile visibility. You need to find the runway or find the runway environment, find the runway. And if you really want to have fun, you have to taxi into your parking spot. When I was, I was deployed, Andre and I literally, we overlapped our deployments by one day. We saw each other for one day as he was coming into theater and I was leaving theater and I was flying King Airs into, uh, into an airport in Iraq. And we broke out right at minimums and the weather visibility was bad. And I got back to uh, where I was living at the time and I called Andre right away and I said, Hey, we've got to add this feature. Um, so he, he was working with our engineers at the time and, and we added that in. So that's the IMC piece. The dust piece is, is pretty simple in the fact it's just taking into consideration. It's replicating that dust environment, both takeoff and landing, because it, it's about the crawl, walk, run that Andre talked about earlier. What I might do, I might, I might jump in there just before you go explain it anymore. I guess step back because I, I think it's something you mentioned in the early description there was this lens you're looking through. Um, normally, again, with the, the foggles and stuff like that or the, the canvas that you put up, it's either on or off. But this is a like a glass or plastic material that you're running an electric current through and you can go from clear to white out essentially with any kind of graduation in between. So when you're saying, you know, trying to, to taxi back. Yeah. So describe what you actually, when you're saying, you know, taxi back at half mile visibility, what are you looking through in terms of the, the lens there? Like it's a, a degraded, like it says, look, looking through a, a pane of foggy glass. Sure. Absolutely. So the, the visor assembly that, that the pilot attaches to the, uh, the X bracket or adapter has a thin piece of film that is controlled electrically. And we can set visibility basically from unlimited down to zero, but more importantly, we can set it anywhere in the middle. We can set half mile visibility, one mile visibility. So critical to get a pilot to understand what one mile looks like. So by looking through this film, we're, we're uh, controlling the opaqueness of the film, which in, indirectly or more directly is controlling what the pilot perceives as a visibility because we start taking away the, the contrast. We start um, taking away those fine details of, you know, that looks like maybe a tower, but I, I can't tell. So we start because the opaqueness is going down, that contrast is going down for the pilot as well. So they're experiencing that lower visibility condition. So when they're landing and they break out of the clouds, say 200 feet, they have a half mile visibility while looking through the film. So they're going to have to find the runway lights to finish up the approach. And I thought that was the key thing. People listening, you might have to watch the video. But that was the thing that really got me is the fact that so much of our training is pretty canned where it's, okay, goggles up, goggles down, or, you know, pull the cameras up, pull the cameras down. There's a hand over between flying pilots when that's happening. Whereas this is, uh, I guess the easiest way to describe it, if you're in a hover and, and it's clear, you're looking out and you've got, you know, 10K visibility. And as the, the fogginess, I guess, of the, of the, the film increases, your vision, just like if you would, you know, in a simulator turning up and down the, the visibility. Um, yeah, so you can see the end of the runway. And then as the film becomes uh, more opaque, I guess, yeah, it, it feels like the world sucks in towards you. Just trying to describe what, I guess, the video at least looks like when you're looking through the film. So as you guys are describing, you know, breaking out a cloud or when we start talking about the dust landings now, yeah, you're just looking at the front and there's no, you're not taking your hands off the controls, you're not adjusting anything. It's just as you're looking through the visor, that visibility is changing from what you see. Absolutely. And, and that's where, and, and go back to the research we've done, 
that's the critical point. It's the transition period. It's not, again, the zero-zero. It's when the pilot's capable of flying both inside on the instruments and outside in the visual world. It's, that's, the, that's what kills pilots, period. So we haven't it's, really, it's the transition. We haven't, really, we haven't really pointed to the actual problem, which is the spatial disorientation. That's when the spatial disorientation takes place, is in that transition period. When your eyes are telling your brain one thing, but your ears, your inner ear is telling your brain something else. And uh, your motor skills have to um, make a, make a <laughs> uh, for lack of a better term, an educated guess on what to do. And, and more often than not, it's, it's an inappropriate control movement. Where this stems from, this, 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 this difference and why it's so critical to put this training inside the helicopter is if I put you in a simulator, I can stimulate your visual system, certainly. Simulators are, are great at, at visual illusions. It takes 20 seconds of sustained motion to create the stimular illusion, the inner ear illusion. And that's what's happening in these accidents. That's the big missing piece is the first time a pilot Oftentimes, the first time the pilot experiences the visual and vestibular illusions and that confusion in the brain that Andre talked about, the first time that they experience it is in the real world, in the aircraft, for the first time, and a lot of times it turns into the accident. By putting them in the aircraft with our system and controlling the visibility, that simulation, that visibility simulation that we're able to do, the aircraft, the natural physics of the aircraft are going to occur. And that's where the training is so much more effective in the aircraft with, with our system is that we're able to control the visual environment. Physics does all the work as far as the vestibular system. And now the pilot has that conflicting experience. And it does two things. It trains, number one, decision-making. You know, we tell guys not to continue into bad visibility, but they don't know what bad visibility looks like because most people don't intentionally go train in bad visibility. We can teach them that. The other thing is, is the recovery phase, because as Andre said, we have that confusion in the brain. We're going to train the brain to disregard the vestibular system, to focus on the visual system. In, in, our, in our research, we talked to some psychologists and said, hey, you know, ABC, visual to vestibular, question to you, what does the brain believe? And we talked to two different psychologists, and both of them immediately responded, the vestibular system. And this, this, this goes in the face of everything we've been taught as pilots because we've always been taught our visual system makes up 80% of our, of our orientation. So, and as we were talking to them, and I said, you know, this is, as pilots, we're taught this. And they said, well, that's, that's a true statement. The problem is, is when you look at cognitive function of the brain and how the brain handles high-stress situations, the brain goes into what, what term, there's multiple terms for it, but fast brain. It reacts intuitively. And when... Your eyes and your ears agreed one second ago, and then all of a sudden your eyes look at your instruments and say, hey, brain, I was wrong. We're not straight and level. We're in a descending turn, and your ears are going, hey, brain, nothing's changed in my world. We're still straight and level. That moment of confusion, your brain will side with the vestibular system, according to the psychologist, because that's what they term the last known truth. It's the last thing your eyes and ears both agreed on. So by default, in the absence of training, your brain believes what, the, your, what your orientation system last agreed on. Those are those precious seconds that we're going to give back to, to the pilot to make not only inputs, but more importantly, correct inputs.
Yeah, and we're, we're overriding that natural response, just like we're doing so many other things, just by, by training that other, the lowly eye of things is, is, is trusting the old trusty instruments. But it's a trained response. Absolutely. So I think I interrupted before then. So you talked about the, the IMC part. And I guess we didn't talk about in-flight IMC. Uh, you talked about things, but something else we didn't train is, you, you know, you're flying along at, you know, 200 feet, 300 feet on a, on a nav, and you've got, you know, visibility. And now in, in the real world, the you know, clouds start dropping in, you start to, you know, your visible environment, you can see your world starts to, to suck in, in that little uncomfortable bubble. But you can actually simulate that. So uh-huh. rather than flying along and, you know, okay, we're now at, you know, 500 feet on climb and we're in a cloud. Yeah, you want to describe how you can set that up in a scenario. So you're flying along on navigation and actually simulate that 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 flight into deteriorating weather. So the inadvertent IMC piece is really the the real core to what we what we what we do. We train inadvertent IMC in four different methods. Um, one of them is manual. It's our least favorite method for two reasons. One, it brings the safety pilot inside. We don't want we don't want the safety pilot inside. That's why the system is automated. The other thing it does is we're not able to create scenario based training as effectively. And, I, and I'll, I'll kind of explain that as we talk about some of the other scenarios or other training methods we use. So manual is just that you set ceilings and visibility, and the, and the safety pilot can control them. But again, we don't like the distraction. The other three methods, which are really what we like best, one of them is we take real world accidents and we recreate the weather. Um, that the pilot experienced that led to these accidents. Pilots, for the most part, are type A personalities. So if you if you give me training that is that I fail at, well, the training must have been too unrealistic because I'm type A. I couldn't have made the mistake, so it had to be the training was not realistic, not that I failed. We take that argument away by putting real-world accident scenarios into our system. It's not my opinion or your opinion or Andre's opinion. This Here's the accident. Here's what happened. This is a real-world accident. So that's one method. So that method updates quarterly because training has to be real, realistic, relevant, and it also has to be constantly changing to keep the interest up, if you will. The other thing we do is random, which is just that. It, it changes the, the time it takes from start to, degrade, to reducing visibility conditions, and then it changes how rapidly they occur. Why this is good is we can go out with a pilot that's struggling, and we could we could burn an entire day's worth of gas and never see the same scenario twice, the same sequence twice. So it's a great opportunity for a pilot that's struggling. You're just going out there to just really train. The other thing you can do in that one is hold it. You can stop it at a visibility. So you can say, hey, I don't want the visibility to go below one mile. This goes back to that decision-making. You know, hey, Mick, how long are you going to fly? It's one mile visibility. How long do you think you should keep flying like this? We want to train better decision-making. If you never get into an environment that's conducive to spatial disorientation, you're not going to become spatially disoriented. So decision-making is key. The last one, which, which I absolutely love, it's, it's my favorite function, is um, a known point. Candidly, we built this for multi-ship operations for military. I could take 10 or 20 aircraft. Andre could come up to Oklahoma and put his Chinooks with my Blackhawks and, and we could we could take all of them inadvertent IMC at the same time. So now not only are we training the individual skill sets of the pilots, we're training the collective skill sets of the organization and they all experience the same weather conditions. The other thing we can do is hold that visibility just like on the random. 
So now we could take one aircraft and say, your visibility never goes below two miles to see what their decision-making is when everyone else in the flight goes in avert IMC and, and enters the clouds that we've created. The, uh, as we transitioned out to the civil world, you know, Andre's background uh, had, has the civil side background. We were talking about, do we pull this out on the civil side? Is it useful? And, uh, you know, Andre called up and said, hey, we need to leave it in. I said, that's fine. Why? He said, because if we leave it in, we can create very realistic scenarios. So if you take a EMS pilot, they go out to a scene and there's, um, we've always referred to it, aviation is get home-itis, but the reality is, is it's really get it done-itis. And, and when you look at the Calabasas accident here in the United States, one of the, one of the factors they, they contribute to was what's called planned continuation bias, which is nothing more than get there-itis. So as an EMS pilot, the decision that you're going to make sitting at the table, you're not going to take as much risk as once you started the helicopter. You certainly will not take as much risk sitting at the table as you will once you pick that passenger, or excuse me, that patient up. So when Andre called and explained that, I was like, yes, that makes perfect sense. Where else can we use this? So we talked about search and rescue. Um, you know, a pilot picks up a search and rescue pattern, which is basically some version of a, of a circle, whether it's expanding circles or, or, or the ladder or whatever method, you're constantly turning, disturbing the vestibular system. So you same thing, we set a known point, the, uh, the, the latitude and longitude of a known point, and as they come on the scene to actually start their search pattern, the visibility is going to start degrading on them. So while they're focused on the mission at hand, the visibility around them is going to deteriorate. And in the worst possible condition, depending on the, the search pattern they chose, and, and again, much like all the other uh, scenarios, we can hold the visibility at one mile, two miles, a mile and a half, wherever we want to hold it. So using Andre's experience on the, on the civil side, we were able to take what was built for multi-ship operations, for military operations, and turn it into very realistic scenario-based training. And it doesn't matter you're a tour operator, VIP, oil field plat or uh, platforms out in the uh, out in the uh, the Gulf or the uh, sea or the ocean, or law enforcement. It doesn't matter your mission set. We can create a scenario off our system that is automated and allows the pilot, safety pilot, to perform his function as a safety pilot and give realistic scenario-based training through either any of those three three scenarios that we talked about. And of course, the manual, I'm not including in that. The last piece was the dust and snow landings and takeoffs. Um, that's the last piece we train. And what we do there, I think Andre talked about it earlier, it's that crawl, walk, run. You know, I, I always always laugh, and, and I've told this story before, but I was talking to my dad when, when we were first designing the system, and, and he, I was explaining what it did and how it did it. He said, well, hold on a second. And my dad doesn't know anything about aviation. He said, hold on. He said, what do you do right now when you got a brand new guy? I said, well, you know, certain training happens. And then when we do dust training, he said, that's what I'm talking about. I said, well, you go out and you land in the dust. He goes, right, right, right. But what do you, what, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, well, you're with them. He said, so you're landing in the dust with the person for the first time and you can't <laughs> see anything. Either. Yep. And I said, well, ideally you picked a good spot that's not dusty <laughs> and there's a crawl walk run to it. But that doesn't always work out. And my dad was just, he was just floored. He was appalled this was our training method. So he became much more interested in, in understanding that, yes, this is absolutely needed. So we're able to go in and, and, and pick a spot and replicate that dust, that dust environment through our programming of our system. So again, I can, I can hit go and Andre can do 20 takeoffs and landings. And every time he comes back to this point, he's going to land into a dusty environment. 
and it's instead of it being somewhere you can catch a skid or, or hook one of our wheels on our aircraft, it's, we can land to, a, to an airport, to a concrete pad. We can land to a, a, an improved area to reduce the risk of the aircraft, not to mention the other pilot isn't having to pay attention to the system. He's going to set it in his door panel. He's going to put it on his leg with the included leg strap that we provide with our system, and he's going to focus on being a safety pilot. So you've got multiple safeties built into that one as well to do that crawl, walk, run, so that when you go out and put a pilot into the real dust, they're not the first time they've trained out their tendencies because just like with the inadvertent IMC piece and the need for visual and vestibular illusions, it's the same thing going into these dust landing situations is when you start introducing the movement of the aircraft, it's an entirely different sensation than just the visual side that we get in, simula in, in actual simulators. So that was our thought process on the, the dust and snow pieces, focusing on that visual and vestibular system again. Oh, look, I, I love it. Like even at the most simple level here in Australia, civilly, we've got an 800 meter visibility limit with a certain criteria. But even just be able to take a student out and fly a circuit with the visibility set at what 800 meters would look like, just to, to have that experience of, of flying even just a circuit in those conditions. But yeah, like the training benefit in those other applications, amazing. And, and again, the video we'll put on the, on the blog post or I'll link to your website has that pilot making an approach to the runway. And as they, they get lower, the, the vision starts to, to lose. And, and I guess you make a decision whether to go around or actually take it to the ground. But oh, look, it's, it's, a, it's amazing. And the nice thing is the pilot makes that go around decision visibility will get better for them. So we're, we're creating the world around it. We're simulating. Matter of fact, that's, that's what we've called it. It's a visual simulation system. So we're, we're replicating. If you, you know, if you make a decision, you can, you can fly out of it. The one thing that we've, we have, will not allow is once you climb into a cloud bank. So if, if the clouds are, 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 are 500 feet, 800 feet, once you climb into the base of that cloud, if you descend, it will never get any better. We didn't want to build negative habit transfer. By putting a pilot into the clouds and letting them dive out of the clouds, we run the risk of creating disorientation, um, especially if you've got low visibility, not just the clouds. So, you know, you're down to a mile and a half visibility and, uh, and climb into a cloud layer. Now, that's something that we can turn on and off, but we don't want to reward bad behavior because at the end of the day, we want you to make a better decision first. And then okay, if that so fails, if you, we're so going to you, recover. So to, to prevent people, you know, you, you go in a cloud, you don't want to have a train response it's where you, you dump the collective and then that's how they get their vision back. So you want them to actually commit to the, to the recovery. Absolutely. Or if you're non-instrument capable or not proficient, whatever's applicable, we want you to make that decision sooner. You should make the decision much sooner than an instrument rated pilot, but we want the decision made sooner. And that's what we're trying to do is that positive habit transfer. What did the early versions look like? Like how'd you go from a piece of paper to walking into the aircraft and, or even before you got to an aircraft, I guess, but yeah, what was the, like the first couple of steps to, to get going? Andre, you want that one? Sure. I remember uh, doing some tests with some film where I just uh, put it on the clear visor on the helmet. But once we realized that we um, most, um, and, from the beginning, Tyson and I really designed this for the military before we started checking into the 
the uh, statistics on the civilian side. But as a military pilot, we realize that a lot of times that using NVGs allows you to see through a lot of that light obscuration. So you don't notice it coming until you're actually in the cloud and now you have no visibility at all. So we wanted to be able to have a system that worked with NVGs and to uh, to be able to train with NVGs. So we quickly took it off the visor and started developing a way to push the film out away from the helmet to be able to be used with the regular visors, but as well as uh, with NVGs. So it was a pretty quick transition. We, we did some early testing with just on the visor but once we realized we wanted to train NVGs, night vision goggles, with this system, it, it morphed pretty quickly into what we have today. The, the two parts I'll, I'll add in there, Andre, is if you remember, we, we actually started out with a single visor that was both day and NVG, but it, it was very bulky and it just was it, it just didn't work well. So we, we split it into two systems, a day system and then a night vision goggles system to reduce. We wanted to reduce the weight on the pilot's helmet all the time. So by splitting it in two, we were able to make both systems smaller because um, of the of being away from the, the helmet. The other thing, um, as uh, different organizations are looking at different versions of synthetic vision, and some of them are attached to a heads-up display or a monocle, um, we're not only night vision goggles, but we're capable of working with the, the monocles for the HUD systems, really the HUD systems for anything, but specifically that synthetic vision environment because we don't use the night vision goggle adapter to attach our system we leave it free for use from the um for the pilot to use for night vision goggles or again if that's where their hud attaches uh, heads of display attaches which there's some variants of synthetic vision that use the for day synthetic vision that uses the night vision goggle mount so we want to stay away from that night vision goggle mount on whether it be the military hgu 56 for the u.s army or any of the other civilian helmets out there, um, we want to stay completely away from the night vision goggling to leave it, you know, to leave that operation available to the user. And so many of these accidents occur under night vision goggles. So to not to use a system that you can't train under night vision goggles, you're defeating, if you're a night vision goggle operator, you're defeating more than half of the value of the system. So this is fielded now, or you guys are you guys are actually training with it at the moment in the units? We've got we've got a handful of systems fielded um, with customers out in the market, and then we're still testing at uh, USRL, the U.S. Army Aeromedical Research Laboratory. So we're getting close to the, the completion of that, and then we're working on on getting it out into the civil sector. There's just such a need, and you know, Andre talked about our focus early on was military, because that's what our background is. It, you know, we started our research after a 2015 uh, Black Hawk accident off the coast of Florida. That's what really prompted us starting this project, if you will. So our focus was military when when we when we kind of started, and it's it's kind of it's ironic, which I think a lot of things are. But prior to Heli Expo in 2019, that the accident the, the accident in northern or in Minnesota was actually that the guy came out of the clouds was actually in 2018, I believe. Prior to no, I'm sorry, it was 2019. Prior to Heli Expo in 2020, Andre and I were talking because we don't. We don't live far apart, but we live far enough apart that we don't we don't often see each other. And we were we we're going to meet each other in California for that. And we talked about it and said, you know, we need to we need to push to the civil side. There's a problem. We know there's a problem. Um, we're, we're where we want to be on the on the on the military side, 
and I, I believe that was Thursday or Friday. And then, of course, the Calabasas accident in California that killed Kobe Bryant was Saturday. Um, when we landed in California for Heli Expo on Sunday, it just it had to be done at that point. Uh, there was such a spotlight on it in the United States. The problem, it, it amazed me, the number of people that approached and said, you know, hey, Tyson, did, did you know this was a problem? And I'm like, everyone in my industry knows this was a problem. <laughs> there is nothing new about, about inadvertent IMC being the leading cause of fatal accidents in helicopter aviation. You as the non-helicopter person are now aware of it. So we, we started to push, like I said, at, at just prior to Heli Expo was our, 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 our plan. And we were, of course, going to formulate our plan as we sat down together for that week, but to push out to the civil side because, because of the need there. Um, there's, there's, again, it's a helicopter problem that, that we see across the board. To move it civilly, so you, you go a Jet Ranger and you want to set it up in there. Is there any engineering or anything you need to actually mount to the aircraft other than the, the, what the pilot's wearing and the iPad? You mentioned the other system which takes in your, your bank and your roll. Can that be carried on so you get it, you know, avoid any Every, engineering everything orders? Is, everything is carried on. We, we um, from, from the very start of, of building it, we focused on not attaching anything to the aircraft. The Army's much, much worse than the civil sector uh, as it relates to attaching things to our aircraft. So everything is standalone. I always, always joke with folks when we talk, and I said, you know, we could go put this in your car, and it would work just fine. So, no, we, we no attachment to the aircraft. The AHAR system we provide, along with the AHAR system, we provide a um, suction cup mount that can attach to any surface and hold it stable. So, of course, we, get a, we, we obviously need good data, but we do not attach permanently and don't require any sort of STC or any modification requirements to the, uh, to the aircraft itself. Fantastic. All right. Well, is there anything, uh, do you want to give the like, website company names and, and where people can go and get more information on it? And yeah, if there's anything that you want to cover that we didn't sort of touch on, that's applicable, but I reckon it's awesome. I reckon it's a great setup. Um, we appreciate I that. There, there, oh, there is one thing that we haven't touched on and that's, you know, the causes of spatial disorientation and why this training had to be brought back into the helicopter from uh, Tyson touched on it a little bit. The, the, the simulator, because it's in a 1G environment and you can, you can move the simulator around, but you're always in a 1G environment. No one's ever become disoriented by tilting their head to the left or tilting their head to the right or tilting their head up. Like Tyson said, it takes that, 20 seconds of sustained acceleration or deceleration or in a turn, those are all considered accelerated attitudes, to get the inner ear fluid to send signals to the brain that may counter contradict what the eyes are telling the brain. We've been training people for close to 20 years now in, in simulators and full motion simulators and telling them that they're perfectly, they're, they're, they have the best training for inadvertent IMC. And, um, and it, if you've never gotten spatial disorientation, you can believe that and think that you're perfectly trained to go out there and fly in, in low visibility. But the, the, the real answer is if you look at the accident statistics compared to the simulator training statistics, Simulator training has, has increased exponentially across the industry, and the accident rate hasn't decreased at all. So we really 
we wrote, we focused on those and tried to figure out where's the root problem here. And the root problem is that there's a gap in training where you're not getting the vestibular inputs that you get in the actual aircraft. And we have to get this, this training back into the aircraft. It's, it's imperative to, to get better trained pilots that make better decisions about weather. And then I've got, I, I, I try to end every present, every conversation that I have with this is whether you use our system or not, and, and, and the science shows that our system will improve training, but whether you use our system or not, talking to pilots about understanding the inadequacies or the gaps in their training is critical. If you're only training in a simulator, you're only getting visual illusions, no vestibular illusions. If you only train in the aircraft, I can repl not replicate, I can create vestibular illusions by having you close your eyes and taking away the visual system. Without a system like ours, you're either missing visual or me missing vestibular, but your training is incomplete. And that's critical for a pilot to understand because understanding where your training lacks is just as important as understanding the value of your training because where it lacks and where those gaps are, a pilot has to be aware of so that when they find themselves in a real world, they better understand what's happening. Tops. Okay, well, that's great. Your uh, your company name seemed very uh, inventive, I guess, with your names. <laughs> Do you want to just describe the company there? Well, the, it, uh, it didn't start out that way. It was actually <laughs> aviation training system. <laughs> okay. But uh, that's a lot to put on a business card. And so we shortened it, and then happily we found out that it also is uh, Andre Tyson Systems. But the, the original intent was a, uh, aviation training systems, which we shortened to AT systems, LLC. Awesome. That's the website address there. So atsystemsllc.com. Uh, and yeah, I'll, I'll put a bunch of photos and uh, the video up on the show notes for, for this episode, but obviously you can see it there. And I think it's one of the things like we can talk about, and I hope we've done a pretty good job of selling it, but I think that video was the thing that really made it stand out because there's lots of IF training uh, items, I guess, on, on the market, but that video seeing it transition gradually rather than just you know putting goggles on and putting goggles off uh, was the thing that made me really stand out. I thought, hey, I've got to get you guys on to, to talk about it. Right. We, we appreciate your time. Go ahead, G, sorry. Well, I was going to say, we, we appreciate you taking the time and, and talking with us. And um, it's uh, we, as you can probably tell, are very passionate. So it's always it's always exciting to talk, and, and we firmly and, and and truly, you know, from not only from from our experience and uh, our research, but believe the product, believe in the product so much, and believe in the necessity of training. And again, one of the leading causes of fatal accidents. So um, it's kind of hard not to be passionate when you spend the time we have, not only on the designing of our system, but you know, committing our our, our time and talents to two organizations to further helicopter safety. It's uh, you don't you don't you don't do the the the, the research and the and the, the donating of your time um, without uh, a very strong passion. So having an opportunity to share with with the aviation community, with the helicopter community, the need for this type of training is is, is just we can't thank you enough. It, it's what needs to get out in the industry. And and we encourage your listeners. There's on the website. There's a there's a link to send information or questions uh, uh, to email us. It's it's just Andre at AT Systems 
LLC.com or Tyson at ATSystemsLLC.com. We, we encourage conversation. I mean, if they, uh, if your listeners disagree, we want to hear about it. If they agree, we want to hear about it. If they want more information, we want you to, uh, to encourage them to contact us and, uh, and keep that conversation going. Yeah. Well, even case studies, I guess, for you guys, if people have had particular situations, um, whether it's, it's been training or for real, that, uh, yeah, you can, Absolutely. You can send, send, the, send the stories in. Yeah. Testimonials are great. Yeah, well, even I think just seeing people who have actually experienced the, the thing for real, as in um, the the loss of yeah. visual reference yeah. or, um, or, or the dust landings. I consider that a testimonial. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the fact that, that, that the training they received prior to that event didn't prepare them for the event. And that's that's what more pilots need to understand, that how overwhelming spatial disorientation can be. And, and the pilots who have experienced it and lived talk about it they're different pilots they make different decisions and and we would love their stories you know i'm sure they tell them every chance they get to other pilots but this device allows every pilot to learn it for themselves because some people don't learn anything until they do it for themselves <laughs> it's the way we and, work and i will say that there's an interesting i can tell right away whether a pilot experienced spatial disorientation versus just experiencing illusions, because there's a tremendous confusion in the industry about those two. Illusions don't always lead to spatial disorientation, but you can listen to a person, and when they start telling their story, you can tell by the passion in their voice whether they experienced an illusion or whether they were fully disoriented, because the guy that was disoriented is the, oh my God, so this is where we were and this is what happened. There's passion. The guy that just experienced the illusion goes, you know, I was flying in the clouds and I got the leans. I just focused on my instruments. Everything was fine. That's not disorientation. That's a visual illusion. That's a vestibular illusion. The guy with the, that, that full-blown spatial disorientation, there's passion because it was a life-changing moment for him. Awesome. All right, Tyson, Andre, thank you so much. Cheers. Thank Cheers. you, man. Appreciate we appreciate it. it. The image on the header or banner on Tyson and Andre's website is the perfect visual advertisement for this type of device and the type of training that you can get out of it. The photo is of a black hawk coming into land just ahead of this massive brown dust cloud. You can't see the tail of the helicopter and you just know that in the next couple of seconds that that helicopter is going to completely disappear as the dust swamps it. Their website address, again, is atsystemsllc.com. You can troll through there and find out more about both Andre and Tyson and the equipment. Uh, the bios for both the guys are, are up there. On the blog post for this episode, I've got a video up and some photos that the guys have sent through so you can see what we've been talking about. And they didn't tell me, but after I spoke to them and was editing this, I found a, a clip on YouTube of the two of them being interviewed about inadvertent IMC. So that is on the blog, along with a, a really good video from Garmin that specifically covers what to do if you do go into Vertin IMC in a helicopter. The other thing that came out in conversation after we stopped recording is that the same system Andre and Tyson have been developing can be used for aerial firefighting training too. There's that ability to, to drop the visibility to replicate what it's like to be operating on a fire ground with areas of smoke and the reduced visual cues when approaching to fill sites. If you have had a near miss with inadvertent IMC or a degraded visual landing, 
I'd love to hear the story. Uh, and I can pass it on to the guys. You can get a hold of me at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Or even better would be if you went to the website and left a comment on the blog for this episode and shared the story there so others can come along and read it and learn from it as well. If you like these episodes and get something from the show, please have a think if you'd be happy or not to throw a dollar my way. Check out rotarywingshow.com forward slash support or search for the show on patreon.com. This is the current support gang behind the show. Thank you so much. That is really appreciated. Jim, Mark, Ian, Hal, Stephen, Alidar, Ben, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, John, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, Rundell. I'll catch up with you in the next episode. Until then, stay out of the clouds. <laughs>